today, we're going to look at a very familiar passage. I'm pretty sure everyone here is going to be familiar with the passage. And when you're familiar with the story, you might be tempted to drift away. Not really expecting the Holy Spirit to nudge you into making a life-changing decision. So I'm trusting you to stay with me. Listen with your spiritual ears. Look with your spiritual eyes. Our passage is Luke chapter 10, verse 25 through 37. But before we stand and read God's word together, I want to give you a freebie. Two extra verses. You can sit down and listen. But I do want you to listen. It's the two verses before our passage. Won't even be on the screen. Just listen. Then he, that would be Jesus, turned to his disciples and said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings wanted to see what you see, but they did not see it. And to hear what you hear, but they did not hear it. Would you stand with me now as we read God's word together from Luke chapter 10, starting with verse 25. This is the word of the Lord. Then turning to his disciples, I'm sorry, let's go to 25. Just then, an expert in the law stood up to test him saying, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? He asked him, how do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. You've answered correctly, he told him. Do this, and you will live. But wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus took up the question and said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him, beat him up, and fled, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down that road. When he saw him, he passed by on the other side. In the same way, a Levite, when he arrived at the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, on his journey, came up to him, and when he saw the man, he had compassion. He went over to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. And he said, take care of him. When I come back, I'll reimburse you for whatever extra you spend. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers, the one who showed mercy to him, he said. Then Jesus said, go and do the same. You may be seated. Somewhere around 1996, I was preparing a message for students on the parable of the Good Samaritan. I realized while preparing, if God called me to minister to someone in need the same way he called the Samaritan by giving 
money, I would not be able to do that. I went home, talked to Patty, and we began a get out of debt campaign. It was hard because we were a one salary family. And student pastors are usually at the bottom of salary packages. But we did it. And while this has helped us not rely on debt and put us in a position where we can minister when called upon, it's not really what the story is about. There are a lot of things that this story isn't about. You can join the Good Samaritan Club and still not get what this story is about. Today, I hope that we can find out how this story can change our lives while keeping the original intent in place. As with any good story, it's important to know who the characters are and what their role is. I'm going to suggest that there are 10 significant characters in this story. There was the expert lawyer. There was Jesus, the Christ. There was a crowd, don't know how many. There was a man. There were bandits, probably several. There was a priest. There was a Levite. There was an innkeeper. There was a Samaritan. And then there's you. I think you're in the story. Verse 25 begins with, well, it really doesn't tell us everything that I'd like to know. I wish it had said, while the disciples were still grouped around talking about their mission trip, a lawyer decided it was time to talk to Jesus to see if he was doing enough to go to heaven. Doesn't say that. Or maybe shortly after Jesus and the disciples stopped talking about their mission trip, they went to the temple and were seated. Jesus was preparing to teach on race relations with the Samaritans when a lawyer decided it was time to question Jesus to see if he was doing enough to go to heaven. It, it, it's not in there. In fact, depending on your translation, it probably starts with something like, just then, just there. Did you ever watch the Justice League? Any Justice League? There you go. There was a guy named Bill Woodson, and he'd make this transition. He would go, meanwhile, back at the Hall of Justice. Every time he said that, I'd get excited. I think Aquaman's fixing to get a tuna sandwich. Something was going to happen. I would have liked verse 25 better if it had started with, meanwhile, back at the temple, a lawyer is preparing to test Jesus. See, that's a good transition. It didn't happen. Just then. And there are a couple more things we should pick up from verse 25. The lawyer isn't like Matlock. He is a lawyer and expert in the Mosaic law. You know, the first five books. He was responsible for knowing the law and knowing how to interpret it, to apply it to life. There's a YouTube video out there with Bo Jackson and a little boy. There are several boys. It's a baseball camp. And this little boy doesn't know who Bo Jackson is. Bo knows who he is. And this little boy, Bo's telling him kind of his resume. 
The kid looks completely unimpressed. And then he mentions that he played with the Raiders. And then there's an argument about where the Raiders are located. It's an awesome video. And in this story, this is a similar situation. You have an expert of the law talking to the giver of the law. You have Jesus who knows that the law doesn't work because we can't keep it. You have Jesus who has never broken the law talking to an expert on skirting the law, ways to get around it. And the expert starts by calling Jesus teacher. When the text told us that he was going to test Jesus, we can assume that the teacher wasn't sincere. This wasn't going to be a, I really need your answer to this question, but more like, I know the answer to the question, and I'm going to make you look silly when you say it out loud to this group question. He did not have the purest of motives. Here's the question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? I admire Jesus. I admire his restraint. He didn't say to him, well, that's the stupidest question I've ever been asked. I probably would have said that. By definition, inheritance is something you receive. You don't have to do anything for it. Someone gives it to you. They die, and then all you have to do is to receive it. That's how inheritance works. But Jesus didn't say that. If you're Jesus, this is, this is too easy. He's already covered it. The answer from Jesus should have gone something like this. Admit you're a sinner. Believe in me. Confess that I am Lord. Bow your head. Repeat this prayer after me. That's how we do it. Maybe he draws three circles. Maybe he explains that he is the bridge. Maybe he says that we should eat his flesh and drink his blood or that we should love him so much that in comparison we hate our families. Jesus knew the answer because Jesus is the answer. He is the way. He is the truth. He is eternal life. This parable is not about social justice or racism or not being in debt so you can do ministry. For the past several weeks, I've been asking people, so what do you think is the major theme of the Good Samaritan? Nobody gave me the answer that I put down. So they're probably right. I'm probably wrong. But I think at the end of the day, this is an evangelistic story. It's like Nicodemus at night or the woman at the well or the rich young ruler. Jesus gives a do this and you will inherit eternal life answer and it can rock the very foundation of your soul. And today, as we hear it, it should have us asking, am I ready for eternal life? So the lawyer asks a question, I think with smugness, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus counters with the question, a question that should have been easy for the expert to answer. Jesus says, what is written in the law? How do you read it? Jesus is just getting him to admit that he already knows the answer. If you're sitting here today and you're not a follower of Christ, I don't think it's because you have a lack of knowledge that's keeping you from following Christ. I talk to people and ask them about 
why aren't you following Christ? And they say things like, too many hypocrites in the church. Okay. All the church does is ask for money. Not true, but okay. My favorites have to do with, I worship God in nature. You know, the kind with 18 holes and a beer cart. Or a bass boat and a lake. Jesus wanted expert Bert. I felt like I needed to give him a name. In the story, everybody's got a name. To realize that he's wasting his life trying to be good enough to earn his way to heaven. Expert Bert gives an Old Testament law answer. He's an expert, right? He answers with the words from Deuteronomy 6.4. Well, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. He even adds Leviticus 19.18, love your neighbor as yourself. I think Jesus smiles. Maybe he thought it was cute. And says, well done. Do this and you will live. And I think he got up to leave. I would have had enough. I would have gotten up to leave. Doesn't say that. But Jesus wasn't quick enough because expert Bert didn't get what he wanted. It says he needed justification. So he looks at Jesus and says, and who is my neighbor? Probably shouldn't have done that, but he did. It's a silly question. We know neighbor. To answer it, all we need is a sweater and Fred Rogers. It's a beautiful day in the neighborhood. A beautiful day for a neighbor. Would you be mine? Could you be mine? Won't you be my neighbor? Mr. Rogers knew about neighbors. Jesus knew about neighbors. And when Jesus answers the question, he doesn't give a long theological discourse. He doesn't even say there are several Greek words for love. He just tells a story. And it's a story that's lying there like a booby trap in the pages of the New Testament. It almost seems innocent, harmless. You've seen it many times before. And then it explodes and it buries shrapnel in your soul. This is a story that has been told billions of times. But this is the first time from the lips of Jesus to the ears of birth, the expert and the crowd and the disciples. Maybe it doesn't say, probably. Jesus tells him the story of the Good Samaritan. He didn't call it that. He didn't say, well, let me tell you the story of the Good Samaritan. He also didn't call it the story of almost dead Fred. The man needed a name too. It's got a nice ring. He probably wouldn't have gotten very far in the story before expert Bert quit listening if he had said good Samaritan. So he saved Samaritan until he needed it. It's the story of a man going from Jerusalem to Jericho and he's attacked by bandits. Jerusalem is around 3,000 feet up here. Jericho is 1,000 feet down here below sea level. So you've got a long downhill road, about 17 miles. And if you're going down, you, you begin to notice your legs are burning, thinking maybe I shouldn't have had the extra bagel. It's a severe winding road. It was in ancient times and it's still today. It's still a very windy road today. I don't know if you noticed, but when I was putting this down, did you know that windy and windy are spelled the same way? It was just for me. 
Today, this road still scares people. It scares people when they go on a bus tour, especially at night, because there are the edges are these precipices that go way down into these huge, deep canyons. And it's filled with dramatic drops, and it's filled with rambling rocks, ideal hideouts for bandits. So it's a scary place, especially if you're familiar with it. And when Jesus is telling the story, they were familiar with it. And somewhere on this road, Fred was attacked. The attack would have been enough to keep this story from being on Netflix, uh, from being on Hallmark, but it would probably have been picked up by Netflix. History tells us that centuries after the New Testament time, it was still a highway that was literally featured with robbers, highwaymen, and bandits. History also tells us that it was a favorite site for Arabian robbers. I didn't even know that was a thing. So possibly this group, the Arabian Assassins Association, you've probably seen their AAA bumper sticker. Going down, you would have to pass the Pass of Aduman. We read about that in Joshua 18. It's a word that means blood or blood pass. It means a place of death, a place of bloodshed. It's very dramatic to see this man going from Jerusalem to Jericho on a road that was very familiar and understood to be very dangerous. Almost dead Fred falls among the bandits. I don't think it means he tripped. I think they pounced. And they didn't just rob him. They stripped him. Now we're MATV. They robbed him. They beat him up. They left him half dead by the side of the road. If we're going Netflix, he's probably three-quarter dead. But you get the picture. He's in bad shape. Out of nowhere, they hit him. They took everything he had, including the clothes on his back. He's probably just left in his undergarments. Every possession that he had, including his sack with his extras, they took it. And it says they beat him. And our English word, we hear beat him, you think maybe a, a punch or two, but no, 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 no. That word is a constant verb. They just kept on beating him until he was virtually on the bridge of death. He was in critical condition, and now he's in a desperate situation. He needs help. He can't help himself. Almost dead, Fred can't move. He can't lift himself out of the condition. He's possibly thinking, well, maybe nobody's going to come by and help me. And I could die. He'll be gone. What's going to happen? And I don't know if he passed out or if he's just down for the count. But in the story, Jesus says that a priest and a Levite walked by. And they looked. I kind of feel like it was one of the... And they kept on going, the priest and the Levite. There have been lots of comments and commentaries about the priest and the Levite. Personally, I usually snicker at the one that says they were probably coming home from the temple after leading a course on helping the helpless. In this story, they look, but they don't touch. They continue their way. 
my brain is weird. I wonder, did they stop at the inn? Could they have stopped at the inn and checked in for the night? And were they there when almost dead Fred arrived? I, I don't know. In the story, Jesus now is ready to drop the bomb. A Samaritan happens by. Expert Bert in his mind is already booing. Then Jesus says, the Samaritan stopped by, and I'm pretty sure Expert Bert thought he was probably going to see if there was anything else to steal because he was a Samaritan. But Jesus said that, that Sam, the Samaritan, had compassion on him. That's another word that we hear and we think we understand, but you probably don't. It's a word that has to do with your, your guts being twisted up inside. It's a word that's akin to the pains of childbirth. So when the Samaritan went by, he didn't just go, eh, maybe I should help. He had compassion. It was gut-wrenching. He went over and he bandaged his wounds. He poured some oil and wine. Probably means he didn't have methylate. Because when I was a kid, you got methylate. If you've never had methylate, praise Jesus right now. Because what he got was oil and wine. And he bandaged him. And he, he picked up his almost naked self and he put him on his donkey. And he brought him to the end and he gave him to the innkeepers, two denarii, and said, will you take care of him? I'm going to come back, and I'll pay for anything else that he owes. This is a good time to remind you that Jews hated Samaritans. That word hate is not necessarily unique in the Greek. It means what it means here, hated. They hated them. There was such dislike and hostility between Jews and Samaritans that when Jesus said Samaritan, it gave this story the punch, the bomb, force. The Samaritan was the one who could rise above bigotry and prejudice, centuries old problems. He was the one who showed mercy and compassion for the injured Jew after the Jews' own countrymen passed by. In the first century and most likely long before, both Jewish and Samaritan priests taught their people it's sinful to have contact with the other group. Jews were to avoid the Samaritan and the Samaritans were not to speak to the Jews. In addition, Samaritans and Jews fed this hatred with insult and injury. For example, Jews called the Samaritans a herd, not a nation. A widely used Jewish proverb stated that a piece of bread given by a Samaritan is more unclean than swine's flesh. One point in the first century, Samaritans threw human bones into the temple in Jerusalem on the day of Passover. It was a heinous act, according to the Jews, that defiled the sanctuary, making it impossible to celebrate their most important feast of the year. 
the worst insult that a Jew could use was to call someone a Samaritan. I don't know if you remember this, but in John 8, 48, the Pharisees, when they were hostile and angry at Jesus, they said, are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and possessed? They called Jesus a Samaritan. That would make him the really good Samaritan. Whenever a Jew talked about a Samaritan, he called him a dog. That was rough. That was bad. At the end of the story, Jesus says, of the three, the priest, the Levite, and the Samaritan, who is a neighbor? Expert Bert says, the one who showed mercy. He couldn't force himself to say the Samaritan or even his proper name, the good Samaritan. And Jesus looked at him and said, go and do likewise. He told expert Bert he was to go and show mercy. He was to give aid, to pay the price, to be merciful. So there's some points of view that I want us to look at, like the point of view of the bandits. They attacked and took everything he had and almost beat him to death. This is, I think, what we would do. Let's put together a social program to educate them so they can get proper jobs and they wouldn't need to hurt anyone else. If we took the bandits out of the story, we don't really need to know who is my neighbor. The bandits are just trying to provide for their family, so maybe we should just provide for all their needs. What if we took the Levite and the priest and they went on a mission trip to the bandits' camp and shared Jesus with them? What if expert Bert saw the bandits as his neighbors and spent the remainder of his life living with them and teaching God's law? We're going to skip the bandits' point of view completely because there was also the injured man. The injured man, from his point of view, he had been beaten up by the bandits and left by the side of the road to die. So maybe we could interview him. Pardon me, sir. We're doing kind of a theological survey, and I wonder, from your perspective down there by the side of the road, who would you say is your neighbor? If the man could mumble a reply, it might be as big as the world. Just about anybody coming down the road who's willing to stop and lend a hand would qualify completely. It's not the complete answer, but... From the view of the man by the side of the road, it's one way of looking at the neighbor. And then the point of view of the priest and the Levite. If that almost dead Fred by the side of the road was making a list of candidates for neighbors in the story, who's he going to put on the top of the list? The priest and the Levite, right? Tradition says that before they left their homes that morning, they would have quoted these two great verses of Scripture. You shall love the Lord God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, and your strength. And you should love your neighbor as yourself. They said that before they left their house. If I'm making a list, I want the people who know and say those verses every day, the priest and the Levite, to be my neighbor. But Jesus said the priest came down the road and passed by on the other side. It's hard to understand how that could happen. How could one human being see another human being in such desperate need and do absolutely nothing to help him. It doesn't sound like our kind of folks. We're from the South. Hospitality is our middle name. 
Southern hospitality. Maybe it's our last name. But this sounds like somebody that lives up in New York or Chicago. We have the perspective of the innkeeper. To him, it was just another day at work. Then a Samaritan shows up with the man tied to his donkey. The man was bandaged and smelled like oil and wine. He gets him off the donkey. He's treating him, gets him to a room. Then he pays for the VIP treatment, either two months of lodging or a month of lodging and food, and said, I'll come back, I'll pay if there were more due. I bet there was going to be more due. The bandits, the priests, the Levite, the Samaritan, and the keeper all viewed this situation differently. Since the priest was a religious type, I'm sure he had religious reasons. We know the Old Testament said if a priest touched something dead, he was going to have to go through cleansing. And that would have been a tough thing to do. It's expensive. The Levite, Levite was, if the priest was like a pastor, then the Levite was like the associate pastor. He took care of the scrolls. He kept operations going. Sometimes he did ministry. And maybe he thought, you know, I'm on my way to Jerusalem to give my lecture on helping the hurting. There are several hundred people that are going to hear what I have to say. Maybe I can challenge the young people to start a Jericho Road Mission Society. Wait, I'll call it Jericho Avenue Mission Society Jams. And we'll help out people who are in a jam. We'll come back here, get organized. We'll have a whole mission effort of folks who have been beaten up on the Jericho Road. I don't know what the Levite thought that day. But I do know that he looked at this man. And he walked by on the other side of the road. Expert Bert redefined neighbor so that neighbor would not include Samaritans. He just rewrote the definition and left out Samaritans. We know that from Matthew 5. Jesus said, the rabbis have taught you, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemy. The Samaritans were their enemy. So they weren't included as neighbors. The Old Testament clearly says, love the stranger in your midst. It was required. But they didn't love enemies. They didn't love strangers. They didn't even like other Jews. They just liked people who are like them, Pharisees and other scribes. How in the world could you justify that? They tried. They took Psalm 139, 21, 22 and said, here's a virtue. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with the utmost hatred. They become my enemies. I hate my enemies. That's, what, that's the step they took. In Exodus 23, the Old Testament said if an ox fell into a ditch, you could get him out. They had more compassion on an animal than they had on a Samaritan or a stranger. They were a long way from caring for people. They were so self-righteous, they turned hating other people, enemies and strangers, to picking who they wanted to be their neighbor. So that's why the question, well, who is my neighbor, is such a mocking statement. He's saying to Jesus, you're going to have to show me a different definition of neighbor. 
That means he was confident in his love for God. He was confident in his love for neighbor. He thought he loved God and he loved neighbors perfectly. It's just for you to find the word. It scares me that the church in 2022 does the same thing. We've redefined the Great Commission. We've turned short mission trips into interesting places to visit. I've actually heard with my own physical ears somebody say when talking about a short-term mission trip, I've just always wanted to go there. Not. God has called me to this place to use my time and talents, but I want to go see the sights. The third man down the road was a Samaritan. If the priest and the Levite were at the top of the list of candidates for being a neighbor, he's on the bottom if he even makes the list at all. And when he comes down the road, he sees the wounded man. He's filled with pity. He gets down on the side of the road to cleanse his wounds, to bandage his wounds. He put the man on his donkey. He brought him to the hotel. He sat with him through the night. He paid for the room and promised to pay anything else he needed. It's easy to read that part about he gave him two denarii or two pence and not realize what a sizable donation that was. The denarius was a silver coin of the Roman Empire. It's the word for money and other languages use it. There's a bank down here called denaro. It's the same word, money. So uh, two denarii were two days wages or a third of what an individual could earn in a week. At current U.S. minimum wage, it's about $600 for 40 hours if you do 15 an hour. Archaeology helps us know what that amount of money could buy. Archaeologists found a sign from an inn located in the Roman Empire pretty close to the time setting of Jesus and it said that a nightly visit, a nightly room, would cost one thirty-second of a denarius. At that rate, then giving two denarii could have been two months' stay, or if you add food, maybe one month. Whatever, it shows that the Samaritan gave way more than was expected of him. The lawyer not willing to take the name Samaritan on his lips, said to Jesus, well, the one who showed mercy, Jesus replied, go and do likewise. My neighbor is anyone whose need I see and God has put me in a position to meet. Much better definition. We spend a lot of time looking at this parable. I want to remind you that it is a parable, but it's also a salvation story. It's Jesus doing personal evangelism. It's Jesus doing personal evangelism, standing in front of a man. All the stories that are parables, 40 or so of them, they're all about salvation in one form or another. They're all profound. They're all theological. They're all doctrinal. They're all presentations of truth that maybe are hidden for those that only see them with physical eyes or hear them with physical ears 
and don't look at them with spiritual eyes or hear them with spiritual ears. This parable, the story was made up by Jesus, probably right there on the spot, to teach the lawyer mercy. We don't know the names of the bandits. We don't know the man or his nationality. What if the man was Samaritan? Who knows? We don't know the name of the priest, the Levite, the innkeeper, or the Samaritan. They're made-up characters in a story designed to teach a lesson to answer the question, how do I have eternal life? If we're using the story to teach a wayward soul a lesson on what it means to follow Jesus, it's a good story. What if we looked at this story in a different light? What if we looked at this story through evangelistic eyes? What if the man in the story that got attacked by the AAA bandits was expert Bert? What if the trip was his life? What if the bandit gang was the law and the religious system and his desire to measure up, to be good enough, to do enough, and it left him beaten and helpless and in need of aid. What if the priest and the Levite were the religious system that measured everything by your own works and had nothing for you if you weren't perfect in one of them? What if the Samaritan was Jesus who is willing to take you just as you are, no matter how broken you are, and put you back together and pay a debt that you could not pay and left you at the end, which could represent the church. And Jesus said, take care of him until I come back and take him home. I don't know. But I do believe this is a story about evangelism. To Nicodemus, who was born a Jew, Jesus said, you must be born again. To the woman at the well who wanted well water, Jesus said, well, what you need is living water. To the rich young ruler who thought he had everything worked out on his own, well, he went away sad. To expert Bert, Jesus said, go and show mercy the same kind of mercy you just heard about in a made-up story. The same kind of mercy I am willing to give you. Jesus knew expert Bert was his neighbor. And he was willing to love him and forgive him and accept him and heal him and give him a purpose and a plan. Today... Dear church, that same Jesus is headed your way. We're here on the side of the road, beaten, broken, and left for dead. He's the really good Samaritan, and he wants to fix you up. But you got to let him. I don't know your story. I know your story is not made up. You've lived it. But if you're here today and you've never asked Jesus to fix you up, to pick you up by the side of the road and give you the proper medicine, to forgive you, to cleanse you, to pay a debt that you cannot pay. And today would be a good day. It could be your day of salvation. 
I told you that you were in the story. So you need to look through there and see, who am I? Am I almost dead for Ed? Am I expert Bert? Am I the priest or the Levite or the Samaritan? I think we identify with at least one of those characters. Today, whatever it takes, leave here willing to love and show mercy. Let's pray together. Would you stand with me while we pray? Father, I thank you for your word. Father, a story that we've heard probably hundreds of times. Father, today we ask that you will help us to examine it and to let it examine us. Point out to us today who we are, where we're going, and what we're doing. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.